This morning you guys have the opportunity to, uh, the privilege, I should say, to get to know me a little bit more. At least, uh, I hope that it's a privilege. My fear is, in fact, that uh, you're going to be bored to death. Because uh, one of the things that that I get nervous about when I I have to give a testimony or something like that is that I I really don't have anything interesting in my life to share with you guys. Uh, If I'm asked to give a testimony or if people ask me, you know, what was a dark time in your life when... uh, you know, share, share from that. Tell me about a, time, a dark time when, when, when God moved through your life and changed you. I, I don't really have that. There, there's no drama. There's no tragedy. There's nothing mysterious uh, about my life. It's pretty, pretty plain, ordinary, uh, boring. And so, uh, so I'm a little concerned this morning that I might lose some of you guys. I hope that that's not the case. But here... Uh, Pastor Peter, as he usually does for all of us who are going to be preaching in the church, he, he makes a pitch for what the, the sermon series is going to be. And as he just ta- told you guys what this sermon series is going to be about, he said, okay, here's what I'm thinking. He said, if I were to preach in this sermon series, he said, I would preach about the time when I was dying of malaria in the hospital and God placed on my heart this amazing passage that just saved my life. Now, I don't know what that passage is. I really want to know now what that passage is. Now, you guys probably know what that passage is, and I can't tell it to you because I'm not Pastor Peter. Uh, I don't have a story where I was up at the edge of the cliff of life, and God just put this passage in my life that backed me away from that cliff. I don't have a story in my life where, where God just gave me a powerful passage that helped me get through a tough family situation because, honestly, I've never really had a tough family situation. I haven't even had a broken heart in my life. That's how boring my life is. So I hope that you guys can, can stay here with me this morning. I hope you don't fall asleep. If you do, I really won't be too upset. I fall asleep in church all the time. Um, not this church. Not this church, right? Of course not. Of course not. Um, but, uh, but what I do want to talk about is, is what my life was like. And I think that you guys hopefully will be uh, impacted. Some of you guys might be able to relate, hopefully. But uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, I did have lived most of my life in Chicago, but when I was uh, about 10, 11 years old, my folks moved out to Ohio. And I, I have a great family. Um, my parents are good Christian parents. They raised two amazing kids. Um, I wish that I was one of them. No, I am. I am one of them, and, uh, and uh, they, they, did. they did a great job, great parents. I, I have nothing to complain about from my upbringing. Uh, my dad is a pastor. Um, my mom is, well, as I was growing up, she worked in the American Cancer Society. She uh, was a nursery school teacher, and uh, she now sells Mary Kay. She also makes baskets and sells them. So this is the kind of wholesome family upbringing that I, that I have. <laughs> Great, great family. Now, we, we, lived, we moved to a, a town called Boardman, Ohio, from Chicago. We moved to Boardman, Ohio, kind of during my formative years when I was in junior high, high school. Lived there. And uh, Boardman, Ohio, it's a small town. It's a suburb of a, a larger city, a small city called Youngstown, Ohio. And if you come into Boardman, Ohio, from any direction that you come in, any road that you come in, it says Boardman, Ohio, a nice place to call home. And it is a nice place to call home. Nothing really goes wrong there. Good schools, you know, good people. You know, everything is, you know, it's just so. It's not, nothing to worry about. It's good. And, and within this community, Boardman, a nice place to call home, uh, was my parents' house. It was a parsonage. It was owned by the church, and we lived in, uh, in this home. It was great. If you walk into my parents' home, uh, one of the first things you'll notice is that it's perfectly neat, perfectly clean all the time. My mom keeps a, a great house. And, uh, and even before you notice just how perfectly kept this house is, what you'll notice is the smell of freshly baked bread. Um, my, and, and it smells like freshly baked bread baked bread, not because my mom goes out and purchases like a Glade plug-in, plugs into the wall called like fresh, freshly baked bread. No, she is always baking bread and, and none of this like bread machine business. She actually makes it from scratch. So all of this wholesome upbringing earned me the reputation from my friends. Uh, that They called me the all-American boy. I don't know 
why necessarily. Maybe it was because, you know, everything was just, we're good parents. You know, my dad was a pastor. We were good kids. You know, we, we did well in school and we never got in trouble. Um, but I was the all-American boy living in the all-American family uh, in the all-American town of Boardman, Ohio, a nice place to call home. And, uh, and there is one thing, though, that I, I didn't mention. Um, I, I mentioned the fact that, that I grew up in the church. And my, my folks are Christians. My dad is, in fact, a pastor. One thing that I didn't mention um, and, and might give you some insight into my life and my upbringing is that we are an evangelical family. Now, when I was growing up, um, I really didn't know what that meant at all. My mom, once in a while, she would say things like, oh, that's, that's a good church down the road. It's a good evangelical church down the road. Okay, whatever. Uh, they're, oh, they're a good family, you know. I, they're a good family down the street, good evangelical family. Like, mom, I don't know what you're talking about, but whatever. She, but I would hear this word a lot when I was growing up. And what I want to hear from you guys this morning, I'm going to ask you in just a moment because I think that this could be telling uh, for you guys of what maybe I'm all about. I want to hear from some of you, what does it mean that I grew up in an evangelical home? I want to hear the stereotypes. I want to hear uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And please, you, you won't offend me no matter what you say, but I want to hear from you guys. So, so let's hear it. Let's hear it. What does it mean to be an evangelical? What do you think that means about me? Okay. I'm a, I was hoping, I was hoping somebody would say that. Okay, I'm a Republican. Okay, what else? I'm, hey Tyler. <laughs> okay, I'm generally just a nice guy. Okay. What's that? Anti-abortion. Okay. Okay. So traditional singing hymns around piano at Christmas time. Very, very traditional. Okay. What else? Wear a WWJD bracelet. Not today, but okay. Yes. Yep. Wear a WWJD bracelet. Anthony. Take the Bible literally. Take the Bible literally. Yep. Don't like Halloween. Okay. We're, we're, we're edging over towards fundamentalism here. Yes. Yes, yes, it means you're seeking God. It means you're seeking God. Okay, just two more, two more. Sharing your faith is primary, absolutely. One more. Okay, Sunday afternoon dinner. Great. Those are good, those are good stereotypes that... It's interesting because the reality is over maybe the past 10 years, this word evangelical, this group of people, the evangelical people, this demographic in the United States has really kind of taken this forefront. You hear about it in, in political discussion. You hear about it in the media. And probably one of the main reasons for that is that we have a president who uh, is a proclaimed born-again evangelical Christian. And the fact that he is kind of an embattled, controversial president brings this whole thing right to the forefront. He's an evangelical. What does that mean? That he was, he's an evangelical. And, and, and there's all this you know, talk in the media while the evangelicals have all this sway in America. Their vote really counts. Whoever the evangelicals decide really matters. But what does it really mean to be an evangelical? We've heard some good things. Some of them are kind of more on the stereotype side. Some of them are more on what it actually means to be an evangelical. But when you talk about evangelical, what it, when you look at the, the root of what evangelical is, you, you look at the Greek root of that word is this word, euangelion, which uh, in Greek means good news. And that kind of at the root of what evangelicals are is there are people who believe that you should share the good news of Jesus. Uh, They are a people who want to go out into the world and tell everybody that there is this saving relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. They believe that that is the truth and that everybody needs to know that you need to have a saving relationship with Jesus, that you need to be born again. That's kind of like the mantra of evangelicals. Uh, Comes straight from John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, if you want to have new life, you need to be born again. So, so evangelicals go out into the world and they want to make, make it so that all people will come and be born again. And of course, from the word evangelical, same, same root word, we, we have the word evangelize, which is just the act of going out into the world and, and telling people um, about Jesus. 
Uh, now, the thing is that there are positives and there are negatives about being an evangelical. And for those of you who don't know, um, this church that we are part of, New Community Covenant Church, is part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. So we, as a part of our identity as a church, is part of that identity is being evangelical. So, so as we're, we're talking about this this morning, kind of take that in because, because this is important for understanding who we are as a church, but there are good things uh, oftentimes and there are bad things uh, about, about anything. And, and of course, we've mentioned a couple of these good things. One of the good things about evangelicals is that they want to get the word out. Evangelism is key to being an evangelical. And that's probably one of the reasons why it's one of the fastest growing religions in the world. I, I found this, uh, th- this, uh, this quote um, in Religion Today from about four or five years back. Uh, they did a study of uh, religions, world religions, and they found that evangelical Christianity is the world's fastest growing religious movement. There are 645 million evangelicals in the world, 11% of the world's population. The U.S. Center for World Mission and Researchers, Patrick Johansson and David Barrett, said that the movement is growing 3.5 times faster than the world population. And the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement, uh, which they kind of saw as like a segment of that, uh, is growing 4.5 times faster. And that makes evangelical Christianity the fastest growing religious movement in the world. And the reason for that is probably pretty simple. It's because they want to get the word out. And that's one of the great things about evangelicals. That's one of the things they embrace is sharing the gospel with other people. Now, one of, one of the shortfalls of, of evangelical faith, and, and that's kind of what we're going to be getting at this morning, is uh, this fact that... Um, while evangelicals really embrace the fact that we need to be spiritually saved and we need to, to, to know God and, and, and have our lives be spiritually saved so that we can go to heaven, be saved and go to heaven, they, they really embrace that, but they miss this other side of the gospel. They, they, they miss this side of the gospel that says that it's not just spiritual salvation, it's not just spiritual redemption and salvation of our individual lives, but in fact there is a physical salvation that we need to experience in this world. Physical salvation and redemption and, and restoration of the social order in this world. Evangelicals have, have historically really missed that side of the gospel. And, and one of the things that, that we've said um, in this church time and time again is that the gospel, which is rooted in Jesus' work here on the cross, uh, has these two dimensions. It has this vertical dimension in which we, we understand that, that Jesus came into the world and, and he came so that we can have spiritual salvation, that we can have a right relationship with God, but that there's also this horizontal dimension horizontal dimension in which it's important that that God came into the world so that he could restore the social order. Now, as I was going through high school, I had the, the, the luxury to not worry myself about that social stuff. I didn't have to worry about the fact that uh, though I might be living here in this nice town of Bourbon, Ohio, a nice place to call home, that just two miles down the street from my church was a town called Youngstown, Ohio. And it was a much bigger city. And Youngstown, in fact, wasn't a nice place to live at all. Youngstown was a rough place. It was a hurting and broken city. But you know, my, my evangelical faith really allowed me not to worry about what was going on there. Of course, I avoided Youngstown. I, I didn't want to, to get in trouble over in that part of, part of the area where I live. But, but I, I could concern myself with other things like the fact that most of my classmates didn't go to church. Youngstown, Ohio was a broken and hurting place, and I didn't even have to think about it. Uh, for those of you who don't really know much about Youngstown... Um, I, I, I looked up uh, Youngstown in the Urban Dictionary. Um, good place to find information <laughs> if you're looking for hard facts. But what I found in the Urban Dictionary was, uh, was pretty telling of what Youngstown really is all about. A few definitions here. Youngstown, corruption, 
rundown steel city halfway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, murder town USA in the 1950s and 60s, murder capital of the United States in 1995, the armpit of Ohio, Youngstown, a mostly ghetto city near northeastern Ohio that was filled with crime, is filled with crime, poverty, murder, drugs, and corruption. Youngstown. Youngstown is a largely impoverished city with a median household income of less than $20,000 a year. Youngstown is also notorious for its crime rate with an average of 52 murders a year, countless rapes and robberies. Only 7% of the city's population has a bachelor's degree or higher, which may account for the poor economy. Youngstown, where dreams go to die. Failure everywhere, from the lives of its people to the crumbling foundations of its building, of its buildings. And I lived in Boardman, Ohio. Boardman, Ohio was a nice place to live. We didn't have to worry ourselves with what social disorder was going on in a place like Youngstown. Now, uh, when we talk about evangelical, being an evangelical, uh, I, I've kind of mentioned this already, that, that our church is an evangelical church. And being an evangelical is a huge part of my identity. Uh, and it's been a huge part of the identity of our church. When we first founded uh, this church, the mission statement of our church was, we seek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ both locally and globally so that all may know him and be his passionate, committed followers. And that's still a huge part of who we are. But that's a very, very evangelical mission statement. It's about getting the word out. It's about telling the people around the world that, that Jesus has, has come to save them. But what we've come to embrace over the past few years of the church, and you heard Pastor Peter talk about it already, is this mission that we desire to be a light to the city of Chicago. And that has this wrapped up in it, this social element that, that for the first couple years of our church, we were really just starting to, to get our feet wet in that area. We knew that that was important. We knew that we wanted to embrace that. But it wasn't until just a few years ago that we really embraced the entirety of the mission of God. The mission of God uh, is holistic. It, we don't just exist so that people can hear about Jesus and have a saving relationship with him. We also exist so that society can be changed for the better. So uh, what was the turning point for me? What was the point in my life where I realized that, hey, there's something more to being a Christian than, than just having a right relationship with God and, uh, and being saved so that I, I can go to heaven. It, it's more than just that. What was the point where I, I realized that, hey, there's a social dimension to this gospel that Jesus brought here to this earth. And, and, and when did I, I finally embrace that? Well, like anything else that kind of happens in our life, it, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's been a process for me, as, as I think might be the case for a lot of us who are in this room this morning. But uh, we're going to finally... Uh, jump into the passage here that we're looking at this morning. It's from Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 14. Now, uh, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke. And what we see here is that uh, though this is the first recorded part of Jesus' ministry, Jesus has actually kind of already been going around to different towns. And, um, and he's building a reputation for himself. He's healing people. He, he's teaching powerful messages. And so this reputation of Jesus has gotten back to his hometown. And they're excited because Jesus is coming to, back to his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, what he does is he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And uh, he, he shares uh, a, a passage with them. And I'm going to pick it up there. Uh, Jesus is coming back to, to Galilee, to his hometown of Nazareth. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And I'll read that in just a sec. Now, this was probably, you know, standard tradition. Uh, the teacher would uh, come into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he would, would choose a particular passage, much like we're doing here today. And he would choose that passage, and then afterwards, he'd probably give a little homily, a little message about what that passage is about. 
Uh, I, I know, I realize that it's, uh, I'm choosing a passage in which Jesus actually chose a passage. I suppose what I could have done was go all the way and just back and just choose the passage that Jesus actually chose, but no, I wanted to choose the passage where Jesus is choosing the passage, and here's the passage that Jesus chose. <laughs> all right, Isaiah chapter 61 is what Jesus reads from. And uh, uh, it starts in verse 18. Jesus is reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And there's actually a bit of Isaiah uh, chapter 58, verse 6 in there. And here's what he says from Isaiah chapter 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what happens next, and we'll come back to, uh, to those words, because that's really where we're going to be resting here this morning. Um, but Jesus does something very interesting next. Like I said, it was probably pretty typical that a preacher would come in, he would read a passage, and then he would give some type of interpretation of that passage. Now, the sermon, if you can call it that, because it's really on, only one line long, I love it. It's like the shortest sermon ever. I'm sorry, I couldn't do the same for you guys this morning. But Jesus' interpretation of this passage is phenomenal. He says in verse 21, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's Jesus' interpretation of Isaiah 61. That today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And what he is implying here is that he himself is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's saying to all these people who are sitting there who have probably heard this passage in Isaiah dozens of times in their lives, and it's been repeated over and over and over again for generations for the past 500 years since the prophet Isaiah. He's saying, this passage that you know about and you've heard your entire life is fulfilled today in my being right here. It's powerful stuff. And so what we really need to do is we need to go back and we need to address these words and this passage that Jesus has chosen from Isaiah 61 and and say, okay, what does it mean then? Because what we first ultimately have to do is we need to read all of those me's in this passage like it's Jesus. So let's start off there. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he is anointed. First of all, the Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus. Now we know that the Spirit of the Lord is on him. We've just come through the Christmas season and we know that Jesus was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1, verse 25. We know that uh, in, uh, later on in uh, Luke chapter 3 that, uh, that he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And even right here in chapter 4 we see a couple times that Luke is saying that Jesus went out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus went out because he, he had the Holy Spirit in him and on him. So, so the Holy Spirit is on him. Now, why is the Holy Spirit on him? This is key. Luke talks about, in Luke and Acts, talks about the Holy Spirit all the time. It's a key part of our faith. Why is the Holy Spirit on Jesus? It says right here, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Now, I'm going to stop right there because as a good evangelical, when I hear this, uh, this phrase, preach the good news, uh, my ears kind of perk up because I, I, I know as kind of a uh, so-so Greek scholar, uh, no, kind of, uh, that, uh, that behind those words proclaim the good news is the Greek word evangeliozo, which is a verb, which basically means evangelize. Okay, evangelize, uh, got that, uh, evangelism. Okay, I, I, I love evan- evangelism, evangelical. Okay, this is all about uh, evangelical faith. I can get that. He, he's talking about the good news of, of being spiritually saved in him. It's the good news of, of knowing Jesus, right? What does he say here? He says, I've come to preach the good news to, to the poor. What's that all about? I, I get the fact that, that there's good news. I, I, I get the fact that, that Jesus has, has come to share good news that we can be saved from our sins. What's all this business about him uh, telling the poor about that? What does that have to do with it? 
Now, of course, as uh, uh, somebody who really has been brought up with an evangelical worldview, uh, the way I'm going to kind of process this is something like this. Okay, well, uh, he, he must mean, he's talking about the poor, he must mean the poor in spirit. He, he must mean the people who, uh, who don't know him. He must mean the people who, uh, who are just kind of you know, down on their luck spiritually. I don't know. I don't know. So, so I, go to, I go to the scholars and I check out scholars. What you find with, with theological scholars, and sometimes it drives me nuts, but you know, they serve a, they serve a really important purpose. But you'll find theological scholars sitting around in their universities asking the question, what does it mean to be poor, really? Hmm. And, and they sit around in, in the comfort of their universities with, uh, with PhDs and, and sitting around discussing this, all the while uh, completely uh, removed from, and there's a huge disconnect from people who are actually discussing what this passage means to people around the world who are actually poor. <laughs> Whoa! Sandra believes that. Okay. Okay, so, so if you were really to ask uh, the, the widowed mother in Mexico City uh, with her children who's begging for money on the streets, who are the poor, really? She's going to say, I'm poor. If you go to the, the, the thousands of children lining the streets in Calcutta, India, who are begging for food and begging for money just so that they can survive day to day, if you ask them, who are the poor, really? I'm poor. We are poor. We are desperately poor. And we want to hear good news for us. We want to hear good news from Jesus. Now, I I admit to you, brothers and sisters, this morning, this is really hard for me. It's hard for me to embrace this this morning. Forgive me, I'm not trying to to pull on your heartstrings this morning by, by talking about the broken people in Mexico or India. And of course, we know that there's broken and poor and hurting people right here in our own country, right down the street from where we're at right now. Um, but uh, but I, have to, I, I have to address this this morning uh, because of the fact that, that Jesus actually came to, to talk to people who are actually for real poor, people who are actually in poverty. Now, one, the one thing I really enjoy about liberation theology that comes out of Latin America for the past few decades, uh, one of the things I really love about it is that it actually uh, takes the time to look theologically at Scripture from the vantage point of the poor. But again, this is so hard for me. Coming out of this evangelical worldview where, where I really have this idea that, that okay, it's, a, it's about our spiritual salvation. It's about, it's about us, you know, being saved from our sins and having the opportunity to have eternal life. And having, it, it, it's about this part of the gospel, right? Why do, you th- why, why do you think it's so hard for me? Why do you think it's so hard for me to embrace something like this? You don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. It's real simple, and I think a lot of us get that. It's because so many of us, myself included, are not poor. We're not poor at all. I may have grown up with holes in my shoes. My dad may have barely been scraping by as a pastor for a lot of my life, Uh, but I have never been poor. So what do I do with the fact that in this scripture here, in this message, this gospel message, Jesus comes and he says... I'm here to proclaim the good news to the poor. It's been a huge turning point for me just in, in understanding what the gospel is all about. Huge turning from, point for me in just understanding that, that there's more to this gospel than just my spiritual salvation. There's a social dimension. So let's read on. Let's read on here. Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Could that mean those who are actually in prison unjustly? I I think it could. He has sent me to uh, proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. Could that actually mean those who are actually blind, not just spiritually blind? He has come to proclaim the release of the oppressed. Could that mean that those people who are actually oppressed in the world? I think it does. I think it does. Now, uh, we're going to 
we're going to move on. We're going we're gonna to hit this last verse here. I wish I could, I wish I could do a lot more uh, this morning and talk about the, the end of this chapter where Jesus almost gets thrown off a cliff, and it's really dramatic, uh, but I'm not going to have time to get there this morning. If you uh, have questions about it, come and ask me after the service. Uh, but uh, these truths did not settle easily on me in my life because here I was growing uh, up spending my formative years in the town of Boardman, Ohio, a nice place to call home, right down the street from Youngstown, Ohio, not a nice place to call home, and uh, I really didn't have to think about that at all. I, I, could, I could live my life uh, completely consumed with the fact that, you know what, uh, the important thing is that people just come to know who Jesus is. And please don't get me wrong. Please don't hear me wrong. That is very, very important. And that is still a very huge part of my identity. But to find that balance in my life, to find that balance in our church, to find that balance in our lives, in which we understand that there is a broader social part of the gospel, that there is a social gospel here within these pages, that Jesus came to restore social order, and that, that when I think of that town, that city of Youngstown, Ohio, with its drugs and its crime, and, and when I think that there certainly is a racial element there, because the majority of that population is African American, so what, what does that mean? What, what is going on with the social disorder that's happening in a city like that, and I so slowly and gradually began, began to realize that Jesus actually cares about what's going on in Youngstown, Ohio. Jesus actually cares about what's going on in Chicago, Illinois. And he wants to bring social order and social restoration to those places and throughout the entire world. Now, um, knowing that, that this mission of Jesus has a distinct social characteristic uh, was, was really important for me in understanding this next verse. Because this next verse carries in it a, a whole lot of scripture in just one verse, okay? And uh, in verse 19, a real short verse, Jesus has said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news in the poor. Um, and, and, and why, verse 19? So that he could proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, what is the year of the Lord's favor? What, what, is that, what does that mean? Now, probably most, uh, most scholars would agree, and, and it makes the most sense scripturally when you look at the scripture as, as a whole, is that this line... This verse, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is actually referring to something called the year of Jubilee, which we find in Leviticus chapter 25. Now, uh, if, uh, if you're following me here this morning, that's right, I actually am reading a passage in Luke that is about a passage in Isaiah 61, which is about a passage in Leviticus 25. So we've gone all the way back. And we're in Leviticus where Jesus, where, I'm sorry, where God is really, he's giving the people the law. And, and there are laws for purity and there are laws for running an organized, ordered social uh, society where, where, there, there's, where, where people do good to one another. And here in, in Leviticus chapter five, 25, uh, we see this amazing thing called the year of Jubilee. And to understand what the year of Jubilee is, we really need to understand this concept of rest that, that God established really from the very beginning. God made the world uh, in, in six days, it says, and, and then on the seventh day, it says he rested. And, and he gives that Sabbath day to, to his people as a day of rest. So you have six days of work, and then you have a day, a seventh day of rest. Now, you've got the Sabbath day, uh, which happens every week. And then you have something called a Sabbath year. So every seven years, that seventh year is a Sabbath year. And in that Sabbath year, there would be restoration for, for the land. Uh, in that Sabbath year, the, the ground uh, and, and the plants would be allowed to grow and the land would lie fallow. They wouldn't farm the land. Um, so this was a year where farmers really didn't, uh, didn't work. They could have a year of rest and they, they could live off of the grains and the, the fruits of the production in previous years. And it, it's good for the land. Uh, I mean, scientifically, it's good for the land to just let it lay fallow, let the land rest. So the land has a rest. We have a rest every seven days and then the land 
has arrests every seven years. Now, the, the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee is something great. The year of Jubilee was established by God so that there could be social order, a restoration of social order in the world. And so what the, the, the year of Jubilee is, is that every seven sets of seven years, so every seven sab- sab- Sabbath year, every, after every seventh Sabbath year, uh, that would be the 49th year, by the way, uh, then you have another year after that. So the 50th year every, year, every 50 years would be the year of Jubilee. And here's what happens in the year of Jubilee. It's great. It, it's a restoration of the social order. It's a restoration for people. It's a restoration for society. People who had debts, those debts would be, would be released. Uh, we've, we've heard about the year of Jubilee 2000 was something they did a few years back where uh, they were really asking the wealthy nations of the, of the world, can you please release these poor, impoverished nations from their debt? And it comes from this biblical concept of the year of Jubilee where debts would be released. Land would not just be allowed to lay fallow for another year, but land would be returned to its original o- owners. So people would go back to their homes and, and there, there would be justice throughout the land. It, it talks about you know, justice for the foreigner. It talks about uh, justice for, uh, for people who have been in debt. This, it's basically a, a symbol for the people of Israel, of Israel that in this year, every 50th year, there would be social order. There would be social restoration. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but sadly, uh, it probably was really just a beautiful, beautiful concept. Uh, because they're really, in Scripture and uh, in historical study and archaeological study, there really isn't any evidence that a year of Jubilee ever happened. And can you imagine if one actually happened? It would require saying to rich people, you know what, uh, just let all the debts go. You know what, you, you li- that's your home now, but we're, we're going to return that home to the original owner and you get to go back to your own family's home. No, it's never going to happen. It's completely idealistic. So what the year of Jubilee really became for the people of Israel was this this concept, this this beautiful idea of what it would look like when God finally, finally brings his restoration to earth. So what it is, it's it's a symbol of the kingdom of God. And so what God, what Jesus is doing here when he says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is saying, I'm here to tell you all that the kingdom of God is now breaking into this world. The kingdom of God is not just a, a place where people who know me come and, and hang out and, uh, and, you know, sing songs and stuff. No, the kingdom of God is a place where social order is restored. That's what the kingdom is. That's what the year of Jubilee is. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am ushering in a time when all of your hardships, all of your brokenness will be gone. There will be wholeness. There will be completeness. There will be restoration. There will be peace. There will be shalom. That's the year of restoration. That is the year of the Lord's favor. That is the year of jubilee. That is the kingdom of God. So you're saying, okay, that, that all sounds well and good, but I, I, I got some, some really uh, well-thought-out um, long emails uh, after the last uh, sermon series that I preached, and, and some good questions were basically, okay, you know what, I, I'm all about seeing this kingdom of God thing happen. I, I, I desperately want to see it. In fact, I pray for it all the time. Lord, please let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I pray for it all the time. But I don't see it at all. I don't see it anywhere. So my, my encouragement to, to those of you who uh, are, are, like, are asking those similar kinds of questions, and, and I am saying, the sim- I'm asking similar questions myself all the time. Like, God, why is it still a mess out there? Why is there still social disorder in this world? And, and to that, uh, the one thing that, that I can say, the one comfort that I can, I can add is that, that we live in this, this balance between the already and not yet. The already and the, the not yet. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a difficult concept to grasp that already God's kingdom has broken into this world, but not yet has that kingdom come in its fullness. Already, 
Jesus has proclaimed and established the year of the Lord's favor, and we as the church are a part of making that happen bit by bit, piece by piece in this world. But not yet has that year of the Lord's favor come in its fullness. So where does that leave us? What do we do? What, what have I done? What, what have I done as I've been wrestling in my life with trying to figure out that, you know what, this, this whole gospel message is about more than just me being saved. This gospel message is about more than just uh, me going to my indi- individual friends and saying, hey, there, there's, a, there's a gospel message that God saved you from your sins and you can have spiritual salvation, you can go to heaven, and that's great. It's about more than that. How, how have I come to wrestle with that and deal with that? Well, I want to offer uh, for you guys three, uh, three hopefully practical, helpful solutions. Uh, and the first is this. Um, you guys can, can go ahead and put the first one up. It's um, leverage your wealth and your gifts and, and what God has given you. We, we think oftentimes we're, we look in Scripture, we look at a passage like this in Luke, and we're like, shoot, this is hard. This is hard. And I've already said why I think it's so hard, because shoot, I'm not poor. What do, what do I do about the fact that Jesus comes proclaiming this good news to the poor, and I'm not poor? Well, the good news for you guys is that a huge part of the Gospel of Luke and a huge part of the, the Gospels in general is not just talking to the poor. In fact, most of it is addressing the people of means. Most of it is talking to the people who, who have stuff and saying, here's what you need to do. And, and so my, my first suggestion to you guys uh, this morning is take what God has given you and leverage it for the sake of the kingdom of God. Take the gifts and the resources and the money, yes, the money that God has given you and, and, and give to the poor. And, and don't just give to the poor. Be creative about what you have. We have doctors in this church, a lot of doctors. Maybe those doctors could get together and we could establish some type of free health clinic. I, I know it's possible because I've seen it done in other cities. Uh, we have attorneys in this church. Uh, if you're an attorney, please help these folks out who are doing Michael Legal Aid Clinic. That's a huge way that you can get involved in this community and what God is doing here in this city. Those of you who have gifts of organizing and, and gifts of, of, uh, of rallying people for, for causes uh, throughout the city, Teach other people how to organize. Teach other people how to rally. Teach other people how to be advocates for the poor. Now, those of you in this room who are artists, artists, please uh, paint pictures that will inspire people. Sing songs that will move people. There are those of you in this room who are aspiring theologians like myself preach about the kingdom of God I, I think about what it would mean for me to go back to my uh, my home in Borman, Ohio a nice place to call home and uh, preach uh, a message like this preach a message about bringing social order and you know what I preached there a couple times I preached there a few times I haven't even touched this kind of material what it would mean for me to go back there and, and preach about Jesus good news to the poor how would it be received if I challenged people living in the comfort of Boardman, Ohio, a nice place to go, call home, to go into Youngstown, Ohio, not a nice place to call home, and teach in those schools, to start up businesses in that neighborhood? How would that be received? I don't know. But perhaps that's a way that I can leverage what God has given me. Take what God has given you and leverage it for his kingdom. Second thing, embrace solidarity with the poor. This one is oftentimes harder for us to understand. We talked about, Sandra set this beautiful table uh, here this morning. We talked about what it means for us to, to really just start thinking about the fact that, wow, we just went through the holidays enjoying lots of food, and uh, wow, most of the people enjoyed nothing for the holidays. Uh, what does it mean for us to start thinking about that? And, and what does it mean for us to really remind ourselves that the perfect example of solidarity with the poor is Jesus himself? That Jesus himself, uh, it says in Philippians chapter 2, uh, who being in very nature God, did not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped, but it says that he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We sing, King of all days, oh so highly exalted, that Jesus came down to live with us and to be poor. And we'll sing that song in a moment, and I hope it moves you. And what does it mean for us to embrace solidarity? I know that a lot of us in this room have gone to places in this world uh, like Cairo and lived in garbage cities and, and come to understand what it means for people to really live in poverty. People in this room have gone to Appalachia and spent summers in, with people in Appalachia and understand what it means to be desperately poor in this country. There are people in this room who work with the poor day in and day out and understand what it means for people in this city to be poor. What I, I ask is, we don't all need to go and just give up all of the things that we have. We don't need to give up everything. That may be a call on some of your lives. But what we really need to do is we need to embrace the cause of the poor. We need to go to the poor. We need to learn from the poor. We need to say, okay, okay, what does it mean for these folks who are living right here in our city to be poor and take up their causes with them? Stand alongside of them. That's what it means for us to stand in solidarity with the poor. And finally, uh, the final thing that we really need to do is to posture our lives uh, with humility. And what does it mean for us to, to bend our knees before God in such a way where we are saying, God, I, I want to say that I ultimately have nothing before you. I, I, I told you how much that I struggle personally with the fact that Jesus comes and he says, uh, I, I'm proclaiming the good news to the poor. Well, I'm not poor and I have never been poor, so what does that mean for me? Well, that means that I need to somehow posture my life in such a way that I am embracing the gospel, I am embracing Jesus' good news, and I am worshiping God with a tremendous sense of humility. There's a powerful passage in Luke chapter 18 where this rich, wealthy guy comes before Jesus and he says, Jesus, Jesus, what do, what do I need to do to, intern it, to, to inherit the, the kingdom of God? What do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, and I love this question because uh, it's a very evangelical question. Uh, it's, it's centered on this idea that, okay, I get that. You know, we, we want to be saved. We want to go to heaven. That's a huge part of, of what we desire in our faith. That's a huge part of what a lot of us embrace as the entire gospel. Uh, so I get that. I understand why this guy is coming and asking him that. But, uh, but Jesus very quickly reminds this guy that, no, there is a much larger part to the gospel, and that involves, uh, that involves helping the poor, and that involves restoring order with the poor, and that involves helping the poor with what we have. And he says to this rich guy, he says, he says here's what I need you to do. You've, you've done a lot of good things. You, you've followed the law. That's great. But here's the one thing that you lack. Take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor course this guy is like no way and he walks off and uh and that's the possibly the last we've heard of him uh so you're saying preacher are you asking me to to go in and sell all my things and give it to the poor uh no no that's not the standard that's completely set in the gospel and in fact that there are other rich people who who just give some of what they they have and and they leverage it and, and use it uh to to help the poor but but the powerful thing is what jesus actually says next he says it is more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, that may sound a little weird. Uh, just so you know, he's not actually talking about a camel going through a, a, a tiny sewing needle, which of course would be impossible. What he's talking about actually is a gate in Jerusalem that is the needle's eye gate. And this gate is very small. It is, it's narrow and it's short. And the only way for a camel to get through this gate is to get down on its knees and move through the door. Jesus is saying we need to posture our lives with humility if we're going to understand that the gospel is more than just about our spiritual salvation. 
It's more than just going to heaven. Yes, there is this vertical element. And Natalie, you can come on up and play appropriately dramatic music. (laughs) Yes. I lost you. I lost you. My bad. Come back. Yes, there is this vertical element to the cross. Yes, there's this vertical element to the good news that Jesus has brought into this world. And, and I get that. I, get, I have, was raised up in that. Uh, I never strayed from that. I, I was bought and sold on the fact that, that we need to uh, spiritually, we need to be forgiven of our sins. And that's huge. Please don't lose me on that. That is important. We need to find a balance where we say, you know what? There's a horizontal element to the cross. There is a horizontal element to the gospel in which we say, Jesus, you have come into this world to proclaim the good news to the poor, to the broken, to the marginalized. And you've come to do so so that social order might ultimately be restored. Pray with me this morning. God, God, we thank you so much that uh, your gospel is holistic. God, we thank you that you came into this world not just so that we could be spiritually saved, so that, but so that physically throughout this world, social order might be restored. And so God, what we want to pray is, as you taught us to pray, God, that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. God, that your year of jubilee might ultimately come here in Chicago, in Youngstown, Ohio, throughout this entire world, God, that your year of jubilee, that the year of the Lord's favor might come and be known in this world. King of all days, oh so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above, humbly you came to this earth. And all for love's sake, you became poor. God, thank you for embracing solidarity with the poor. God, and teach us to do the same. And God, I want to thank you personally for, for taking a life that, uh, that really was blind to a huge part of what you came to do and opening my eyes, God. I pray that you would do the same thing for each and every one of us in this room. In your name, amen.